Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Shop shields, uniforms, cameras, and more at ConwayShield.com. Chris Summers is a physician assistant, critical care specialist, and quality assurance and education coordinator who has practiced cardiothoracic surgery and critical care medicine in New York City for the past 14 years. He is a veteran of the U.S. Coast Guard stationed in the North Atlantic and a former New York City paramedic that has responded to countless catastrophes both on land and at sea. Chris is a co-founder of NYC Medics, a globally recognized disaster response group and serves as a medical provider, clinical supervisor, and logistics coordinator. He has extensive international experience working in remote and austere locations within disaster zones and specializes in emergency medical care, disaster management, systems development, medical, surgical, and MCI education, as well as coaching and simulation training. He recently returned from two deployments with NYC Medics to Mosul, Iraq, where NYC Medics was running trauma stabilization points on the front lines in the war against ISIS. Chris's unique and diverse experience in public service helped him to develop a high degree of resilience and small unit leadership skills while operating in hostile environments and under high pressure situations. This is the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Thank you for tuning in. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to speak with me. Hi, Patty. Thanks uh, so much for this opportunity to speak with you. I'm a big fan of uh, Leadership Under Fire, and uh, I appreciate you uh, inviting me to speak with you today. Oh, I like hearing that, and thank you for sharing. And I certainly want to maximize the time that we have with you today. So let's get right into it. So I understand you come from a family of first responders. Do you mind sharing more about that and the kind of upbringing you had for our listeners? Sure. Um, I grew up on Long Island, New York. Uh, My father was a detective and he was in charge of a homicide investigation squad and later on an organized crime task force. And um, my brother and uncle were both uh, New York City police officers. So I grew up hearing all these stories about their time uh, in the city as police officers. And probably those stories were a little too dramatic for a kid my age. But, you know, I heard these stories of what my father and brother was involved in. And I think I developed an understanding of, you know, that there needs to be people willing to act as public servants. And, you know, there needs to be people who are willing to protect others and ensure their safety. So I think that's probably where the first seeds of public service were planted in me. So anyway, my father really loved the ocean. He would always take my brothers and I out on this small skiff and uh, we'd be out in the back bay uh, on Long Island fishing and snorkeling. And, you know, that's where I first saw the Coast Guard and Mm -hmm. I would see those guys out there in their boats and they always kind of sparked my interest. And uh, I think 
you know, that's how I kind of got the idea to eventually join the Coast Guard. Excellent. And as you mentioned, you served in the U.S. Coast Guard, and then you became a New York City paramedic prior to becoming a physician assistant. Can you talk about what led you to the Coast Guard and further on your career path? Sure. When I saw the Coast Guard patrolling the waters when I was a kid, I was always intrigued by them. I thought they were pretty cool, you know, in in these boats. And uh, they're kind of like the firefighters and the police force and the rescue squad all rolled together uh, on their boats at sea. And when I was graduating high school, I was considering joining the NYPD, like, you know, the rest of my family. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was out on the boat and I saw a Coast Guard cutter in the inlet. And it kind of made me uh, make up my mind to join the Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And I joined. I uh, went to boot camp and I learned so much. I learned so much about discipline and every different aspect about search and rescue and I was fortunate to be assigned to a couple of boats where I was mentored by some of the most amazing leaders I've ever come across. Very fortunate uh, in that regard. Even as a junior member, I was given incrementally increasing responsibility and I was slowly being trained and exposed uh, to hazardous and high pressure situations. And my mentors showed me how to act and how to respond in these situations, like kind of like getting a, uh, a vaccine. You know, I was kind of slow, inoculated and slowly exposed to these things. And um, eventually I was able to operate uh, in the Coast Guard at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And it was a great kind of experience because it was this small you know, ship. There were about 15 people on the ship and everybody was encouraged to learn everything and do everything. It was a very nurturing environment based on obtaining excellence in our missions. I think that's where I learned um, how to have a certain ability to assess risk and work safely mm-hmm. and effectively in a danger zone. Mm-hmm. You know, so I did a lot of search and rescue, law enforcement, firefighting, salvaging ships, <laughs> sea, you know, rescuing sinking ships, all kinds of things like that. And it was great. I loved it. And as a kid, it was a great adventure, you know. And then mm-hmm. as for becoming a paramedic, my unit required someone to go to EMT school. And at the time, I didn't even know what an EMT was, you know, but I was selected and directed and sent there. And I ended up loving it. You know, it gave mm-hmm. me the skills and knowledge to help people at a higher degree. So mm-hmm. now, in addition to having the technical, you know, skills to perform rescues at, at sea, I was able to assess the individuals who were injured. You know, it was really empowering. You know, I loved it. I loved it so much that I wasn't satisfied with the basic EMT knowledge. And when my enlistment was coming up from the Coast Guard, I uh, decided to enroll in uh, paramedic school, and I eventually became a New York City paramedic. And again, you know, when I became a a New York City paramedic, I was fortunate enough, you know, once again, lucky enough to be uh, working with people who were very supportive and knowledgeable and uh, willing to mentor and train me and show me the, you know, the way things uh, should be done. And I think that made me an excellent paramedic. It's amazing. Like you said, that entire breadth of experience helped form such a solid foundation for you going forward. And before we continue on down the timeline, 
I wanted to ask you about a specific experience you had with the U.S. Coast Guard. During your time with the USCG, you responded to the tragic Flight 800 crash, which occurred off of Long Island on July 18th, 1996. Do you mind talking about that experience? Sure. Um, The crash of uh, Flight 800, it was a huge tragedy, basically a, a, a gigantic mass casualty incident that was a few miles offshore, and there was a massive loss of life. You know, there were no survivors. In addition to all the bodies uh, of the people that perished, there was a large amount of hazardous materials, jet fuel, chemicals, shark debris, all in the water. And the water was was even on fire for uh, a period of of time. You know, it was really just overwhelming in every regard. And obviously, this was a, a gruesome scene, you know, and I don't want to go into that kind of detail. But, um, you know, this situation did teach me a lot of lessons and allowed me to put into practice lessons from previous disasters that I responded to in the Coast Guard. This was actually the second airline crash I responded to. I was at, I think it was United Air, Flight 5050 crashed off the runway at LaGuardia Airport into the water. When I heard about Flight 800, you know, I kind of had an idea of what to expect about the, you know, the hazmat situation, the potential for people, uh, a large amount of people in the water, uh, people who've perished. But the TWA Flight 800 thing was, uh, you know, the complete loss of life was jarring and really demoralizing. In the Coast Guard, we're lifesavers, you know, and there was no one to save this time. Uh, mm-hmm. The mission changed. The mission really changed from uh, life-saving to recovery. You have to be flexible. And um, I think we were successfully able to change our mindset. And it became one of, you know, trying to bring those people home. And something that I've learned over the years, and maybe I didn't know it then, but, you know, caring for the dead is kind of a special task. And it's really important. It's It's about showing dignity and respect Mm -hmm. for that person and not letting the violent or unusual manner of their death define them, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. to, if possible, bring them back, you know, give closure to their families and so forth. And, you know, to work in a situation like that, it's really about kind of being flexible in your mindset, changing your mission plan, you know, kind of doing what needs to get done. Wow. It's interesting to hear your reverence for human life based on these real world, potentially traumatic experiences. It's it's the reason I uh, am involved in public service. You know, when you think about it, public service is, is to serve the public in situations that are out of control for the average citizen, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. so um, that's, that's why I do it to help people, you know, to help other people in, in really any kind of situation that happens. And I kind of have based my life in this incremental kind of system of training that somehow allows me to have the skills, knowledge and ability to, to work in these zones, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue into my next question, which could be an entire podcast episode on its own when you really start to unpack everything. But here goes. 
You have extensive experience responding to humanitarian crises and disasters around the world. You were amongst some of the first medical responders to reach devastated villages in the Kashmir region of Pakistan following the 2005 earthquakes, in Haiti following the earthquakes in 2010, in the Philippines following Super Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, in the remote villages of Nepal following the earthquakes in 2015, the Shepherd Islands in Vanuatu in 2015 following Cyclone Pam, and helped oversee and staff trauma stabilization points in Mosul, Iraq, during the liberation of Mosul from the Islamic State, amongst many others. Can you talk about some of your experiences and some of your more memorable moments during your time abroad, working in some of the most devastated and ravished communities in the entire world? Uh, <laughs> yeah, That's sure. a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah, we can go in a lot of directions. There's a lot there, um, but I'll try to keep it kind of concise and on point, you know. So when I was training uh, as a paramedic, I had a mentor that told me that, you know, once you possess medical knowledge and, and skills, it becomes a responsibility or kind of becomes a duty for you to transmit that knowledge widely and freely, you know, as, as wide and free as you can, you know, uh, because that knowledge and those knowledge and skills, you know, belong to the people, right? So I've been lucky enough to be able to participate in so many medical missions all throughout the world that have allowed me to bring my skills and experience to practice medicine and disaster relief, you know, pretty, pretty wide and far. There have been so many instances where we were able to intervene and save lives where otherwise people would have died or they would have had, you know, suffered morbidity and mortality. And traveling on these missions, we were able to ease a lot of suffering and we've treated thousands and thousands of patients. The reason I do this work is to help people, you know. My team and I, you know, we're willing and capable to endure hardship, discomfort, and do what we need to do to access those people deep in disaster zones who would otherwise not get any help. In Pakistan, we used mule trains to carry our supplies over the mountains, these high mountain passes. In the Philippines, we took dugout canoes and later helicopters to reach these far-flung islands. In the South Pacific, we almost skid off this grass runway that was on the side of a volcano into the sea, oh, uh, trying goodness. to reach, uh, yeah, trying to reach an island that was decimated by a, a, a typhoon. So a lot of experiences come with the with the disaster <laughs> stuff. In Nepal, we were um, in the high mountains uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas after the earthquake there, and there was a huge aftershock. And across the valley we could see the side of this mountain just got sliced off into a giant landslide. And the, the earthquake knocked us down to our feet, you know, and I felt the air get sucked out of my lungs. It was really quite a terrifying experience, you know, but to experience that, let us experience what the people we were treating were experiencing, you know, mm -hmm. and it's somehow you know, increases your understanding and builds your empathy for the people you're treating, you know, to, to live with them, to experience the same things they're going through. And, you know, just luckily uh, that landslide happened on the other side of the mountain, which was pretty, uh, pretty good. But over the years, there's been some close calls, you know, but helping those in need is one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. And it's really 
the reason I'm in medicine now. You know, there've been a lot of adventures, but more importantly, we've treated thousands of patients uh, over the years who who would have suffered greatly. You know, so that's kind of why I do it, and mm-hmm. some of the thousands of stories. You know. Right. I'm sure there are thousands of stories. And I want to just take a moment to let the listeners know about the website, nycmedics.org, because as I was preparing for this episode, I took the time to go to the website and do some research and I was able to watch some media clips. And so I appreciate you sharing your candid reflections of these times, but it's another thing to actually go see what it looked like somewhat from some of these media clips. So I would encourage people to go there and and take a look and really try to fathom the experience that, that you've had. Yeah. It's, it's hard to describe. I really don't know what to tell you about because there's so many different things, you know? Well, so having experiences in various types of communities all around the world, is there a distinguishing factor or factors that you noticed to be consistent from place to place, especially amongst those who were in the midst of tragedy? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, there are, are, are a lot of similarities, you know. The first thing I've noticed, and this holds true, you know, from anywhere I've been on the planet, I've been kind of all over the places, we're all basically the same, you know. As human beings, we all want the same things. We all need the same thing. We need safety, security, food, shelter, clean water, education for our kids. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're on the side of a mountain in Vanuatu or, you know, in the Philippines or here in New York, you know, basically everybody wants the same, the same stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And after you travel around and meet people from all over the world, you quickly realize that we share more similarities uh, than we do differences. And really, you know, different culture makes us really unique and interesting. and, And it's like politics that divide us. So people everywhere are kind of the same, you know? Mm-hmm. And the other thing we share is the common human condition, you know, where we are all vulnerable to the same things. We're vulnerable to sickness, injury, disaster, disease. Now we see a global pandemic. It doesn't matter who you are, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what your religion is, your politics, your socioeconomic situation. As human beings, we're all uh, subject to the same thing. Another thing that I've seen is unexpected disasters that cause so much suffering also seems to ignite the human spirit. You know, people Mm -hmm. come together. I've seen it countless of times where people come together and people are so resilient and somehow they find a way to rebound and rebuild. Disasters kind of strip away all the stuff that's not important, you know, and, and reveal kind of this, human side, you know, it it causes people to drop their biases and it kind of reveals this altruistic core that I think people have, you know, and, and it kind of brings people together in a, in a very nice way, you know, although it happens in a horrible situation. So it's interesting. You have that perspective based on all of your experience and your travels, but as you mentioned, you're originally from Long Island, you're based here in New York city And you have obviously been navigating some of the most impoverished and in some cases hostile parts of the world. 
So can you talk about how you and your team members are able to successfully navigate and embed yourselves into these communities? I mean, I I understand where you're coming from now in terms of your mindset and where your heart is, but when you walk into these zones, how do you integrate? Yeah, it's not for everybody, uh, that's for sure. You know, it (laughs) takes a special mindset. It takes a special skill set to live and work in extreme and austere disaster zones. You know, there needs to be a high kind of a high degree of altruistic drive and intent, you have to want to be there for the right reasons because there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of suffering for the team too. You know, there's, there's lack of equipment, food, water, shelter, you know, we're camp basically camping out with the people who are suffering from the disaster and we need to be self-sufficient and able to make do. You really need a can-do attitude. It's not enough to be an expert in medical care or disaster management, you have to be able to be self-sufficient and live in the field with uh, limited resources, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes questionable rations and you have to remain positive and you're there to work for the people, you know? And one of the ways we're able to do this is when I was a paramedic, the people I worked with, the other paramedics, are people I work with for over 10 years and we know each other. We've been in every kind of emergency together. We, we know what each other is thinking. We know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And those are the people that I go on disasters with. Those are the, uh, my fellow co-founders of NYC Medics, you know, all the paramedics I worked with. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have a common mindset. You know, I think you definitely need that to to work in a field like this. You know, you have to know who you're working with. You have to know that they can handle it. You have to know each other's strengths and weaknesses. These things are important to operate, you know, with a high degree of autonomy in a uh, remote location. Basically, you know, when you work in this kind of environment, you definitely realize that we're all basically the same. And once you realize that, any preconceived notions and biases seem to melt away. And you're able to connect with people on a humanistic level. When you respond to disasters to provide care, people see you there. They see that you're there to help them. And, you know, all the differences between us melt away. And what's left is a fellow human being helping another fellow human being with caring and compassion. You know, I've seen it a million times. Compassion transcends all the languages and cultural and political barriers and it's like the basic human soul rec- recognizes each other, uh, even if we're from different parts of the earth, you know? So that's one of the special things that you see in disasters, uh, you know, how we're able to come together. The basic human soul recognizes each other. That, that I'm going to pause with for a second, because I think that's very powerful. Chris, can you recall any instances that you had to make any difficult life or death decisions or maybe instances where you had to sacrifice your own comfort or safety for the sake of the mission? Yeah, that's another great question. You know, I've had to make many tough uh, triage decisions in the field. When you're deep in a disaster zone and you're far from any help. You know, you might be a hundred miles from the hospital. There may be no roads. There's no helicopter access. You, you, you can really be literally on your own and definitive care is inaccessible. The roads are washed out. Bridges can be destroyed and you really have to be self-sufficient. Medical supplies can run short. Sometimes you have to decide who's best going to benefit 
from those medications, you know, and you have to make tough triage decisions. It definitely can happen. Um, you need to really know your medications and equipment. You need to know, you know, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth line indication for medications so that you have something to use in case you run out of something. One time, you know, we were up in the foothills of the Himalayas in Pakistan uh, treating patients after this enormous earthquake that killed 90,000 people in one morning. I mean, it was completely devastating. And we received uh, uh, this child, you know, I don't know, maybe four years old or something. And he was severely dehydrated in septic shock. And, you know, really, he was on the brink of dying. And we're in the middle of nowhere. There's no hospital. There's no place to bring this kid to. You know, his blood pressure was extremely low. We weren't able to get an IV um, because he was so dehydrated. And, you know, he just desperately needed IV antibiotics and fluids. So I knew that we could place a special type of IV into his bone marrow in his leg. But we didn't have the equipment, so um, we had to improvise using a regular type of IV needle and try to place this uh, access into, into his leg. You know, the first try didn't work, but we had no other choice, right? So we tried again, and luckily it worked, and we were able to resuscitate the kid. And eventually he was able to get to the hospital, and he was able to survive. And we were in a location that was completely remote. Nobody was coming to help. There was very limited supplies. And we had to make some uh, decisions to try something that may or may not work. And, and luckily, in this case, it worked and the kid survived. As for safety and sacrificing our own safety and comfort, we camp out in the field with, with the people we're treating. So we could be camping up in the gravel field, on the grass somewhere. We filter water from a stream or we drink, you know, capture and drink rainwater, things like that. In Mosul, Iraq, we were treating trauma patients very close to the front line in the war against ISIS. And this is a place where there's an active battle going on and movement in that zone is extremely limited. So we could get patients who needed to go to a hospital, you know, immediately, but we're not able to do that because of the kind of the tempo of the war. So uh, we had to make a lot of decisions based on just our own physical safety. Um, we couldn't travel at night. We couldn't travel to certain areas because the uh, war was active in certain areas. So we had to do things, keeping that in mind. And then the other thing was, the hospital system in Iraq uh, was only capable of handling certain things. There were hospitals that didn't have any ventilators. So if we put somebody on a ventilator in the field, put a breathing tube in, and he got sent to the hospital, the hospital couldn't handle it. You know, So we mm -hmm. had to make sure that we were providing care that matched care that would be able to be sustained. You know, So some pretty tough uh, decisions to make. You know, how much you can treat a patient, how you can kind of transport them and where you would transport them. So those are all real concerns for sure. As we start to turn the conversation towards things happening here in New York, I have to ask, what is it like for you when you're coming off of these missions and coming back home? Is it 
difficult to let go of what happened and start integrating back into, you know, your normal day-to-day life here? Yeah, it, it definitely is. You know, we call it the, our re-entry, you know, the re-entry, hard re-entry. Most of the time, uh, when I get back, I'm just still really thinking about what's going on in the field. And if the disaster is still active, I usually have a strong desire to return back, you know. So many of these disasters, I go on one mission, I come back and then somehow convince my boss to let me go again, you know, because I, I it's kind of hard to let go. You become attached kind of to the people in the community and you want to, and you make friends there, you know, and you want to see that they are getting what they need. And it's hard to leave and know that, you know, people are still suffering or the situation is still uh, bad there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, it can be tough coming back. Well, you currently work as a cardiothoracic PA in New York. Can you tell us about your team and what your regular day entails here? Sure. I work uh, as a cardiothoracic surgery PA. I spend most of my time uh, assisting in surgery in the operating room. And uh, sometimes I'll be in the intensive care unit, but mostly I'm in the operating room. And I'm, I'm fortunate to work with amazing, an amazing group of uh, professionals, surgeons, PAs, MPs, nurses, and so forth. And we have a great tight-knit team that I'm very, very happy to be part of. I also coordinate the department's quality assurance and education program. Mm-hmm. And I'm involved in training new personnel in uh, surgical management and techniques, critical care situations. I do a lot of coaching and simulations and mentoring and training students and nurses and so forth. So that's very uh, satisfying. And I like doing that because all along my career, I was just fortunate to have people who really looked out for me and and went out of their way to train me in, in, in such a way that the knowledge and skills were transmitted and I, and, and I was slowly able to become stronger and stronger, you know? So I use a lot of the same techniques that were taught to me in the Coast Guard and as a paramedic to train people in the hospital. Excellent. It's interesting to hear you thread the needle from the start of your career to present. You know, in early 2020, enter COVID-19, your hospital was at the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic here in New York City. And you are still currently on the front lines, continuing to treat those who are infected. From a provider's perspective, can you share what it's been like to be working throughout this crisis and the challenges you and your team of healthcare providers have faced? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, my my career path, kind of uh, everything I've done has compounded the next thing, you know. So right from an early age, being, you know, on a little in the Bay uh, made me experience the Coast Guard. And then I learned in the Coast Guard and then became a paramedic and then a PA. And all of those lessons I learned really uh, came together, especially in this COVID-19 pandemic. For many people in my hospital, working the MCI of this magnitude was a new experience. You know, most of the young people in the hospital, uh, the nurses and doctors and just everybody, they felt overwhelmed, you know? Nobody has seen anything like it. I mean, I have never seen rows and rows of people on ventilators before on on some of the strongest, highest doses of medications. I, I don't know, it's hard to put any words to it. It was completely frightening, you know? 
almost all the people in the hospital got redeployed to areas where they don't normally work. You know, they had to make intensive care units in regular floors, in waiting rooms, in the cafeteria, in a, you know, like just any space they had. It was really difficult to deal with the extremely high number of some of the sickest patients I've ever seen. It was, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there's uncertainty, just like every MCI. You know, this had, this had kind of traits of all the different kind of disasters I went to. You know, first there's like, you know, a little bit of information and then somehow that turns into a rumor of this or that. And then, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was very little access to PPE. I wore the same mask for a week or longer uh, regularly. We ran out of medications that I, I, I've never seen before. We ran out of sedatives. We ran out of antibiotics. We ran out of just about everything. All the, all the medications eventually ran out. We had to use second-line medications or third-line medications. So it was really kind of taxing on the personnel in the hospital. But I'm also so proud of the people I worked with because everybody stepped up and mm-hmm. did what they had to do and worked so hard. And, and the leadership at my hospital in particular was so supportive and um, they did everything they could. Do you think it was so jarring mm-hmm. to see that happening here in our country with all these resources that we typically have? Was that perhaps like a component of the concern and the fear based on your experience? Yes, I would have to agree with that. Like I, I would never would think that we would have to worry about rationing ventilators or would we run out of a certain medication or how do we not have masks? You know, the cheapest thing in the hospital, how how are we not supplied, you know? So yeah, it was uh, very confusing kind of the, the response on a larger level to the situation. How did you navigate all these challenges, both as an individual, and how did your team navigate these challenges? For me personally, I think my past experiences uh, have given me a certain understanding of what to expect, you know, and, you know, I, I somehow have the ability to work long hours, uh, be flexible, work in uncertain conditions. I saw a lot of similarities to the things I saw in the TWA flight 800 situation. There was a huge influx of help. You know, we had people come from all over the country to help us. There were PAs and NPs and doctors that came from other hospital systems. And then when you have this large influx of people, they have to be managed, you know, so that causes a lot of confusion in the beginning. You know, people want to help, but you have to deploy them properly. I made it a point because I've seen a lot of these MCIs and I've had, I have a certain insight into them, you know, it's kind of hard to describe, but, uh, you know, I made it a point to contact my team members frequently just to touch base, you know, how you doing, how are you handling things, give them some pep talks and help them manage, you know, negative emotions and try to keep the team, you know, buoyant and uh, positive and safe. You know, we kept we kept an eye out for each other. We backed each other up. We made sure we enforced our strict uh, PPE use and hand washing and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> but I, I have to say the the skill, the compassion, the bravery mm-hmm. that I saw in my coworkers and 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 everybody in the hospital was so inspiring to me. 
it was amazing to see, you know, there's so many disciplines. I'm just going to pick one random uh, discipline, you know, a young nurse who just graduated nursing school has very little experience now wearing a week old N95 mask and, and, you know, who knows at that time what PPE was really required going into a room for a prolonged period of time, facing a, a, a virus that nobody knows about. And they did it day in and day out. And it was about compassion. They put their own safety on the side, you know, and it was amazing to see this from everybody, all the healthcare professionals and to hear stories that from, you know, that healthcare professionals are trying to profit from this or not treating people right or don't have compassion. It really, it it enrages me, you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's just completely the opposite of the truth. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I just have so much respect for, all of the medical people and the, the paramedics in the in the field who are bringing these people in uh, at rates they've never seen before, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm just really proud of uh, the medical community and, and and how they were able to respond to this with so much uncertainty and lack of equipment in the beginning, you know. Absolutely, I agree with that. Unfortunately, listeners, Chris's mother passed away from COVID nineteen early on in the pandemic. And first, Chris, let me offer my sincere condolences. I'm so sorry for your loss. You continue to work treating COVID-19 patients. Can you talk about what this experience has been like and why it has made you continue to help those suffering and dying from this horrible disease? Yeah, that was a, that was a tough one for sure. You know, my mom's sickness and death was completely unexpected, you know, and it came, came out of the blue and it came at the height of the upswing of COVID in New York. So, you know, I, I was completely involved and to get this phone call. And when, you know, as a medical person, you kind of know a little too much. And, you know, as soon as I got the phone call and I knew that she was positive and being moved to the hospital and, you know, I know what her comorbidities are. I like instantly knew what the next week was going to be exactly. And, and it did follow that, you know, the hospitals at the time, you know, were not allowing any visitors at all. She wasn't in any condition to speak on the phone. There was no way to talk to her. She was separated from our family. And when she ultimately died, we weren't able to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, the family wasn't there. There was no funeral service. Mm-hmm. They weren't having funeral services. She was buried by the funeral home without any family members present. A good friend of mine's mother also died and the funeral homes were so busy. He couldn't find a funeral home in New York or Long Island that could mm-hmm. collect his mother's body. That's how busy it was, you know? So I had to think about this, you know, and, and I have certain ideas about death and, and how we have to care for people who have passed. And I know how compassionate all the medical teams were. And I know without a doubt, even though my family and I weren't able to be there with my mother, mm-hmm. I know that there was some nurse, some doctor, somebody there, you know, that was with her and had compassion for her. 
and treated her with dignity and respect when she died. I know that's true. And the situation, even though, you know, I've been around death and dying and I've seen massive death in MCIs and, and so forth, but when it hits home, you know, it hits yourself, it's completely different, Mm -hmm. you know, like it made me completely irrational for a short period of time. You know what I mean? Like you lose your clinical detachment and your brain gets scattered, you know, and I had to sit down and think about it, you know, and we're in the middle of this thing. We're in it. We're in this war. There is no way to stop. Uh, I'm part of a team that is short staffed and necessary. So I have no choice but to continue and to use this situation in a way to honor my mother, you mm-hmm. know, to, to keep going, to keep helping other people. And even though I have a high degree of empathy for the family members and people suffering and dying alone, it just somehow connected me more to my patients and more to the families. And I think it allowed me to, to be better, a better medical provider. And in some way that helps me honor my mother, you know, in her death. And then, and then on, you know, on the medical, like clinical detachment side of things, you know, she was at an age and, and has certain comorbidities where I know she wouldn't have done well in the ICU on a ventilator, you know, it'd be a lot of suffering, you know? So I think, out of all the ways to go with COVID, you know, she went with the least amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a tough one. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I can't imagine. And you're right. You know, the mourning process has been so disrupted by this pandemic and everybody that I've talked to in the medical profession has talked about being there for their patients as much as they could be towards the end of life and not only their patients, but their family members, you know, whether it was yeah. FaceTiming them, holding their loved one's hand or something like that. Can you talk about the mental toll this has taken on many of our healthcare providers and as a community, where do we go from here? Yeah, sure. I kind of considered it my duty after my mom died to just all the patients I was taking care of, whether they were sedated and unconscious or whatever, you know, to go and talk to them, tell them that their family loves them and, um, and to call the family members, you know, every day and, and so forth. But uh, anyway, many of my colleagues, you know, probably all of my colleagues are exhausted, you know, they're exhausted physically, they're emotionally drained. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing so many people suffer, it, it just, can suck the energy from you, you know, and especially the way a lot of the COVID patients pass away, you know, they're suffocating and nothing we can do seems to help, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially at that time with the limited knowledge we had about COVID, you know, so there's a certain helplessness, you know, we're talking about people who work under certain protocols and you do certain things and people get better, you know, a lot of the time. This was just seemed to be like a futile kind of experiment and, and, and nothing really worked, you know? So I know that medical people are really resilient and they're going to push on and probably have walled in a lot of these emotions, you know, but I, I know there's a lot of post-traumatic stress and um, that's going to have to be dealt with sometime, you know? Yeah. At this point, I, as we start to wrap up, I'd like to look towards the future 
you know, after the COVID-19 pandemic comes to an end, what kind of changes do you see happening in healthcare? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes, you know. I think um, utilization of technology like telemedicine mm-hmm. um, is probably going to expand. I think that strategic stockpiles, you know, developing like uh, logistical supply chains amongst neighboring hospitals will probably be developed. One of the things we have to do, you know, as a nation is we have to trust our experts. You know, we have to engage in scientific research. We have to embrace evidence-based medicine. And we need to come together somehow as a nation and take the politics out of it. You know, there's a lot of strange ideas about this virus. And I can assure anybody listening to this thing that the virus doesn't care what you are. It just, Mm -hmm. it just wants you, you know, you know, those are probably some of the the things that are going to change, you know, Uh, developing new technology, maybe new protocols, maybe there's going to be ways to cohort these patients in one location so that, you know, whole hospitals or groups of hospitals aren't contaminated. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what the, what the uh, bigger minds are thinking about, you know. Well, given all of your experience, what advice would you offer to your fellow healthcare providers for navigating this period of uncertainty? We have to be an example. You know, the health providers have to be an example for our friends and family and the, and the greater population at large. You know, we have to talk the talk and walk the walk. So we have to wear masks. We have to wash. We have to obey social distancing. And just like, you know, in the hospital during the height of the pandemic, we have to encourage each other. Hey, put your mask on. Did you wash your hands? You know, uh, um, stay six feet apart. I mean, these are all things that we're going to we're going to have to do. Um, I think we need to come together at a national level. Right. We have to regain our compassion and our love for one another and all work together to get through this pandemic. I think. Medical people need to do what I call pre-gaming or thought experiments. You have to think about Mm -hmm. what am I going to do if this happens? Okay, I have a COVID positive patient. They come in and this happens. What am I going to do? Okay, I have to make sure that I put my PPE on before I go in the room. I have to make sure I have this. I have to make sure I have that. You go over it in your head first, you know, so you have some kind of plan, right? The other Mm -hmm. thing we need to do is we have to embrace change, right? Things are going to change. We can't hold on to our old, like tried and true methods that are in our muscle memory. We have to learn new methods, new ways of doing things, new technology. We have to find ways to be, to work safer, to be more flexible. We need to remain flexible. We need to remain together. And that's the only way we're going to prevail. You know, this is a change in the normal way things are going. So we need to change with it as well. The, The virus is out there and we have to figure out how to work around it, work with it, how to get medications for it and a vaccine for it and so forth. Chris, I think you hit pretty much every tenant we have here on the Leadership Under Fire podcast today, which is navigating you know, the physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, and moral rigors of leadership. And I really want to thank you so much for sharing all of your stories and experiences with us today. Wow. Thank you so much, Patty, for considering me to talk to you. It really means a lot to me. I think Leadership Under Fire is such an amazing organization, and I've learned so much from it, and I know people will gain so much from being a part of it. 
And I hope that, you know, these uh, stories were in some kind of coherent fashion that people could understand. Without a doubt. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.